Amen. Please turn your attention to Judges chapter 4. We're continuing our series in the book of Judges, and we come this morning to chapter 4, which I'd love to read for us this morning, and then we're going to spend some time meditating on it together. Judges chapter 4. Verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hagaim, Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, the prophet, or now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulon and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking... The honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There, Barak summoned Zebulon and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zaananim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabar, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagaim to the Kishon River all his men and all 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabar with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagaim, and all Sisera's troops fell by his, the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazar, and the family of Heber, the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said. I will show you the man you're looking for. So we went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we would ask that you might speak to us through your word and through your spirit. A word that our minds and hearts need to hear. Help us to be ready to receive. For this we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. There are times in our lives when everything seems to be falling apart, when we don't know what God is doing. I think of the children's book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. It begins. Alexander could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. He went to sleep with gum in his mouth and woke up with gum in his hair. When he got out of bed, he tripped over a skateboard and by mistake dropped his sweater in the sink while the water was running. He could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Of course, it's not just children that have these days. We have these days as well. Sometimes we have days plural like this. There, there are seasons in our lives where everything seems to be going wrong. Perhaps you get sick and you have to miss a very important event. Or you lose your job. Or your family seems to be falling apart at the seams. Or your, your basement floods. It seems like there are little fires everywhere. Holes to plug everywhere you look. Perhaps you struggle with depression. And we cry out in these seasons when everything seems to be falling apart in our lives. We, we cry out, what in the world is happening? Why is this happening? God, what are you doing? This is how Judges 4 begins with this phrase that we see in Judges 3. Again, the Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's part of the spiritual cycle of Judges that God's people turn away from him to other gods and do evil. And God responds by handing them over to their enemies. And in Judges 4, God responds to his people doing evil. And we're told that God sells them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, and Sisera, the commander's, uh, commander of his armies. We are told about Sisera that he has 900 chariots of iron, a symbol of his strength and superiority. Israel does not have this technology, so they were at his mercy. Sisera oppresses Israel for 20 years. Life becomes so hard that the people begin to cry out to God for help. Everything is going wrong. People are wondering what God is doing and where he is. And yet Judges 4 and 5 tell us that in these times, God is still in control. He's still at work on behalf of his people behind the scenes. While God may give his people over to their enemies, he doesn't give his people up. Judges 4 and 5, I just read for you Judges 4, but together these chapters provide two accounts of the same events. You heard Judges 4, I read it for you, that's the prose account. If you have your Bible open, you turn the page over, or you're looking at your device and you scroll uh, to the next chapter, you'll see that chapter 5 is not a prose account, it's a poetic account of the same events. So we have two accounts. There is on the, in the prose account the human perspective on the uh, events. And in Judges 5, we have the poetic, divine perspective on the events. Perhaps you might think of Judges 4 as kind of the street level of, of events, and, and Judges 5 as a satellite view of the events, the God's view of what's going on. What I'd like to do this morning is look at these events by walking through Judges 4, and I'll bring in Judges 5 to, to, for us to see God's perspective on what's happening. God gives his people over to the, their enemies, but he doesn't give them up. God does not give up on his people. What I want you to see this morning is how God is at work among his people in very difficult times through three individuals, Deborah, Barak, and Jael. And I want to look at how God is at work in Israel through these three people, Deborah, Barak, and Jael. First, Deborah. Through Deborah, what we see is God governs his people. 
When the people cry out, God raises up another judge in Deborah. The NIV says in verse 4 that she is leading Israel, but that's usually translated as judging Israel. She's another judge like Othniel and Ehud, like we saw last week, but she's not a warrior judge. She doesn't lead the people into battle. She's a prophet, we're told, which means that she delivers God's word to the people. The way that she governs Israel is she acts like a judge in a court. We, we, we know about that. Deborah holds court under a palm tree in Ephraim, and the Israelites would go up to her for judgments, for conflicts that need to be resolved or disputes that need to be settled. And, and so the way that Deborah would govern Israel is by acting as a judge. She would provide divine perspective on the cases that the people brought to her. So that she rules by wisdom, not by might. Judges chapter 5 calls her a mother in Israel. This is what she provides for Israel. What a good mother provides, stability and wisdom and guidance. Of course, it's unusual to have a woman governing Israel, but this is evidence, I think, of the Bible's positive view of women. Many people these days think that the Bible has a, a regressive view of women, but in its time, in its culture, the Bible is very progressive when it came to women. Here's Deborah leading all of Israel. We'll look at Jael at the end of this chapter who, who delivers the decisive blow against the enemies. Rebecca McLaughlin, a Christian apologist, says that especially in the Gospels, the portrayal of women there is stunningly countercultural. Jesus ministers to women, speaks to women who, whom no one else speaks to, values women, includes them in his group of disciples. She says early Christianity raised the status of women. The Apostle Paul called them as ministry partners. Rebecca McLaughlin says, if Paul's instructions on marriage are shocking to our modern ears, she's referring to that place where Paul calls wives to submit to their husbands, she says they would have shocked the first hearers for precisely the opposite reason, their radical elevation of women. Indeed, for many Gentiles, the Christian expectation that men be faithful to their wives and sacrificial in their approach to them would have seemed quite unreasonable. Christianity in its time ennobled women far more than the surrounding culture. And Deborah is part of the biblical fabric that raised the status of women. Here's Deborah. She's governing Israel by God's word. She appoints Barak to rescue the Israelites from Sisera. She speaks perhaps the decisive word in this whole account. Verse 14, she says to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? One commentator suggests that this verse is the hinge of the whole chapter. This is what sets in motion the whole victorious battle against the Canaanites. Deborah speaks the decisive word. God's word gives strength and confidence to Israel when they most need it. You see, through Deborah, God is governing his people by his word. God's word has always had a central place in the life of God's people. Here's another biblical example. In Genesis 28, Jacob is running for his life. His brother Esau wants to kill him because of the deceitful way that Jacob stole his birthright and his blessing. And so Jacob is on the run in the wilderness. He has no food. He has insufficient clothing. He's missing his family. And God meets him in this point of need, in the wilderness. God appears to Jacob in a dream of a ladder reaching to heaven with angels ascending and descending on it. And at the top of this ladder is God himself. 
And he speaks to Jacob. And he reiterates the promise he made to Abraham and then says to Jacob, I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jacob wakes up with a completely new perspective on his life. That next morning, he makes a vow to God and says, if God will be with me and watch over me on this journey I'm taking, the Lord will be my God. God's word gives him a whole new perspective on his life. And if we had more time, I could show you how God's word strengthens at key moments, Joshua, right before the battle of Jericho, Moses, before he goes to Egypt, David, before he fights Goliath. God's word can give us a whole new perspective on our lives. We see that in Judges 4. Through Deborah, God governs his people by his word. God aims for his word to be central in the lives of his people. And so the question to us this morning is this. How central is God's word to our lives? Do we allow God to govern and direct us by his word? So without God's word, we essentially have a street-level view of our lives. It's God's word that provides a satellite view, his perspective. And it provides, I think, unique wisdom and hope and confidence in our circumstances. That's why many Christians have found it helpful to carve out time daily in the morning to read God's word, to meditate on it. I can't tell you how many times I, I, I've been anxious and worried as I look ahead to all the things I have to do and all the events of the day. And the only way I've found to calm my heart in those moments is to go to God's word and read it and take it in and pray those, those verses back to God. Here's a practical suggestion. If you're a Christian this morning and you're not reading God's word regularly, I might suggest a daily Bible reading schedule for this year. Even just a few verses every morning can make all the difference. Not as a box to check. Not as a way to earn God's pleasure. But as a way to talk with our Heavenly Father to hear his perspective on our lives. I had a mentor years ago who said to himself, no Bible, no breakfast. Because he recognized how, how important the Bible is to him spiritually. As important as breakfast is physically, so is the Bible to us spiritually. God governs his people, in this case through Deborah, by his word. Secondly, let's consider Barak. Through Barak, God rescues his people. In verses 6 and 7, as we heard, Deborah appoints Barak to deliver Israel from their enemies, Verse 6, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go and take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. And then for, verse 14, she reiterates that, go, this is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. And at this point, a question raises that the commentators divide on. Is Barak at this point courageous or is he basically a coward? On the one hand, you can read this account as cowardice. I mean, Barak responds to Deborah and says, Well, Deborah, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. As an expression of fear. Barak is afraid. And he needs someone else to go with him if he's willing to go. And, and then in this reading, Deborah responds with a rebuke. Verse 9, fine, I'll go with you. But because of the course you're choosing, God, the honor will not be yours. The Lord will hand Sisera over to, over to a woman. You could read the text that way, 
Or you could read this text as an example of Barak's courage. When Barak says to Deborah, if you go with me, I will go. If you don't go, I won't go. He's recognizing that Deborah is a prophet who brings God's word. He's saying, I, I don't want to go into battle without God's word. And therefore, it's an expression of dependence on God. Like in Exodus, when Moses says to God, unless your presence goes with us, don't send us up from here. And Deborah responds to this expression of faith, therefore, in verse 9, with, an, with immediate acceptance. Certainly I'll go with you. And then you can read the next words as, in the course you're choosing, the honor will not be yours. As a statement of fact, not a penalty for lack of faith. The question is, which is it? Is Barak a man of courage or a man of cowardice? I think decisive for me is the New Testament reference for, to Barak. Hebrews 11 mentions him as an example of faith. Hebrews 11.32 says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Barak in Hebrews 11 is offered up as an example of faith. When he goes to battle, Barak says, I won't go without God's word. I need God to go with me. He goes knowing that he won't get the honor. He says, that's okay, I'll still go. He goes when the odds are stacked against him. He has 10,000 men, but that's no match for 900 chariots of iron. Barak goes up in faith, and verse 15 is the outcome of the battle. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. We see God rescuing his people. God wins the battle, and Sisera has to flee on foot. And here's where I want to turn to Judges 5, because I think it, it gives God's perspective on the battle and fills in some important details to explain how this battle was won. In Judges 5, verses 4 and 5, it says, When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the, main, uh, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. It's poetic language. It's describing the moment when God goes into battle. He harnesses all the forces of nature. The earth shakes, the heavens pour water, the mountains quake. It's the cosmic language of a storm. God is not only taking on Sisera and his 900 iron chariots here. He's also taking on Baal, the Canaanite god of the storm. Judges 5, verses 20 and 21, then goes on to describe the specific way that God defeats Sisera. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, march on and be strong. As a way of saying, here, here's the way that Sisera was defeated. God sent a torrential rainstorm causing a flash flood of the Kishon River, neutralizing the military advantage of the chariots that were useless in this flood. I mean, it explains also why Cicero got down from his chariot and fled on foot because it couldn't go anywhere. It was stuck in the mud. God rescues his people by marching out with them with all the forces of nature at his command. He sends an epic storm that immobilizes the chariots. Through Barak, God rescues his people. 
I think of that scene at the end of the movie Prince Caspian where the Telmarine army is gathering to cross the bridge of Baruna and there's only one person standing in their way. It's little Lucy, the little girl, standing with her little dagger, but she shows no fear. She stands one little girl against the whole army. The, the odds are ridiculous. From a human perspective, she has no chance at all against this army. Where does her courage come from? You see Aslan step out from behind her, the mighty lion. He steps out from behind her and stands at her side. So that as the Telmarine army is approaching, one roar from his mouth and he wakes up the river and it rises up like a massive tidal wave and sweeps away the army. An entire army is no match for Aslan who has all the forces of nature at his command. My friends, that's why Lucy has courage. And of course, that's a fairy tale, but here is the reality. Barak has courage because the Lord who has all the force of nature at his disposal goes ahead of him. My friends, it's why we can have courage in doing what God has asked us to do. Because the Lord who has all the force of nature at his fingertips is standing beside us. Paul in Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? In the words we just sang this morning, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. My friends, here's our confidence and courage as we do the things that God has called us to do. God will rescue his people. Through people like Barak who obey in faith. God doesn't say to Barak, oh, you, you don't need to go out to battle. I got this one. Don't, don't uh, lift a finger. No, he sends them, go, because I'm going with you. That's what Jesus says to us in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. For lo, I am with you until the end of the age. God rescues his people as they obey in faith because he goes with them. Third and last, let's look at jail. Through jail, God judges evil. Back to the story in verse 17, we pick up the story of what happens to Sisera. He has fled on foot from his chariot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, whom he knows has a friendly alliance with Jabin, his king. So he considers this tent of Heber a safe refuge. And sure enough, Jael goes out to Sisera and welcomes him and says, come in, invites him in, gives him a drink of milk. Sisera says, would you stand guard? She agrees. Jail, in other words, offers exemplary hospitality, which the ancient Near East culture was known for. And Sisera receives it, and he falls asleep exhausted. That's when Jail, we're told, takes a tent peg and hammers it through his temple, drives it into the ground, and kills Sisera. So that when Bear comes in pursuit of him, Jail goes out to welcome him and says, come into my tent, and he discovers Sisera dead. You hear last week, we're meant to see similarities with Ehud, also one of the judges of Israel. Both use deception, both murder in private with a thrust of a weapon, both deal the, the decisive blow to the enemy. Here's the end of the account in verses 23 and 24. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. It's a logical end of Jail's actions. 
But like the story of Ehud, we have questions, don't we? We, we say to ourselves, what in the world is this story doing in the Bible? And what are we to make of what Jael does? I mean, in the, in the best reading, this is morally dubious. Jael breaks two out of the Ten Commandments. She lies. She murders. Her actions are treacherous, even more treacherous than Ehud's. She breaks all the rules of Middle Eastern hospitality. She welcomes in a guest and then kills him while he's asleep. And you say, what do you make of Jael? What do you... What do you make of that? Here's the first thing I think we need to think about. Just because the Bible describes something, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's prescribing something. There's a, there's a difference between description and prescription. Just because the Bible reports something doesn't mean that it recommends that thing. This account in Judges 4 is descriptive. It doesn't at the end say, go and do likewise. There's no moral commentary in what Jael does here. But to be honest, if you, if you turn the page to Judges 5, Judges 5, this divine song, poetic song, praises Jael for what she does. Most blessed of women be Jael. And you say, then how can this be? How do we make sense of this? How is what she does praiseworthy? One of the fundamental categories I think we need to read this account in is the context of Judges and therefore the context of what is called harem warfare, where God calls Israel to completely destroy the Canaanites as an expression of his moral judgment, using Israel, in this case, as an instrument. See, God is not calling for genocide. He does not call for the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites because they're Canaanites. He calls the Israelites to destroy them because they're sinners. This is God's moral judgment on the Canaanites brought forward in history. There, there will be moral judgment at the end of history, and it's God's prerogative as a judge to bring that forward in history at any point he chooses, like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. And in this case, Sisera is not, Sisera is not an innocent victim, hardly so. Judges 5 tells us from the lips of Sisera's own mother, that when Sisera defeated people, what he, his want was to do was to gather plunder for himself and rape all the women. His mother says this, one or two women for every man when he wins a battle. And so there is a sense in which what happens to him is retributive justice. The horrors that he inflicted on other people, boomerang back on his own head. And the most devastating defeat possible for a man like this, a woman whom he victimized or would victimize, kills him. And it shows us that God uses flawed people to accomplish his purposes without condoning the flaws themselves. You see, in the mystery of God's providence, God uses unexpected people in unexpected ways. And we'll see this and continue to see this all through Judges. Like Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho. God uses her of all people. And in the same way, God uses Jael, who don't miss this heroic action on her part. She risks her life to deliver a people not her own. She's not even an Israelite. She puts her life on the line to do this. So what do we learn? We learn that God will bring his judgment on evil. It may take time. Sisera oppresses the Israelites for 20 years, but God brings judgment in his time. The Puritans used to put it this way, the mills of God grind slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. 
God brings his judgment on evil. And God accomplishes his purposes through hidden providences. Through hidden providence, he's always at work. Look at this account. It's not an accident that Jael kills Sisera. Verse 9, Deborah prophesies, the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. This is part of God's plan in, in, in his hidden providence. Verse 11, when I was reading it, maybe you picked this up. There's a random geographical comment that Heber pitches his tent by this great tree. And it's random. I mean, if you look at verse 11, it has nothing to do with the context. You're like, uh, so why is Heber pitching his tent here? Well, it's not random. Because God in his providence is positioning Jael to be in the right time and the right place to fulfill his purposes. One commentator puts it this way. Not even Heber's U-Haul truck is outside God's plan. You see, God uses the details of our lives to accomplish his providential purposes. God's providence works in ways that defy human expectations. By his mysterious providence, God uses Deborah and Barak and Jael to govern his people and rescue them and judge evil. Back in 2006... New atheism exploded onto our cultural landscape when Richard Dawkins published his best-selling book, The God Delusion. Along with his fellow atheists, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens, they were referred to as the four horsemen of the new atheism. They lifted up the promise that the outdated superstitions of religion would finally be blown away and replaced with the triumph of a scientifically grounded and reasoned atheism. That was 20 years ago. Today, new atheism has all but disappeared and has become reduced to a footnote in history. Alistair McGrath, who is on the faculty at Oxford and teaches in the area of religion and science, says that when he's talking to younger students, he has to explain who Richard Dawkins is because they don't know. Alistair McGrath and his colleague Dennis Alex, um, Alexander, who teaches at Cambridge, have together edited a book that I've mentioned before a few weeks ago entitled Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. And in this book, they tell the story of 12 people who initially thought that Richard Dawkins had all the right answers to life's biggest questions, but then came to realize that his approach was simplistic and inadequate. Here's what Alistair McGrath says. Dawkins promised them a world of secure certainties and a rational approach to life. Yet on close examination, he offered them only another set of beliefs rather than scientifically or logically secure certainties. Over the years, many were bothered by the arrogant tone of the new atheists. So, for example, Gary Wolf, the journalist who coined the term new atheism back in 2006, observed of new atheism this. He says, people see a contradiction in its tone of certainty, contemptuous of the faith of others. Its proponents never doubt their own belief. They're fundamentalists. Even those who might side with the new atheists are repelled by their strident tone. And so when these people who became disillusioned with, uh, by Dawkins began to, uh, began to search, they began to look for something better. And that led them to Christianity and faith in Christ. And so in an amazing twist of events, Dawkins became a doorway not to atheism, but to faith in Christ. In God's mysterious providence, he used Richard Dawkins, an avowed opponent of Christianity, to lead people to faith. I think it's a reflection of what happens in Judges 4, God's Providence works in mysterious ways. And perhaps the best illustration of this is the cross of Christ. 
Acts 2.23 says of Jesus, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God used wicked men as his instruments to put his own son on the cross. And imagine what the disciples felt like as they saw their master hanging on a cross. Their world was coming apart at the seams. Everything was falling apart. God, what are you doing? Why are you letting Jesus be crucified? And yet in God's mysterious providence, the moment of greatest defeat turns out to be the moment of God's greatest redemptive work. The cross is evidence that God does not give up on his people. My friends, Judges 4 and 5 is a call to trust the Lord, to not turn aside to other gods. It is a call to spiritual renewal, to put God's word at the center of our lives, to obey what God has called us to do in faith, knowing that God goes with us, like Barak, to trust in God's providence, though he works through unexpected people and in unexpected ways. Don't give up on God because he doesn't give up on you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Judges 4 and 5 and for this promise that you do not give up on your people. Though we go through hard times, though there are moments when it feels like the world is coming apart at the seams and we wonder what you're doing, thank you that Judges 4 and 5 tell us that you are still governing your people by your word. And you're rescuing people by your presence in your time. And you work out your providential purposes mysteriously in unexpected ways through unexpected people. Lord, help us not to give up on you in hard times. Help us to trust that you never give up on us. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.